Reach Freaks. Thank you for listening to Invisible Choir. This episode contains sensitive material, including graphic depictions of sexual assault, which some listeners may find especially distressing or traumatic. Listener discretion is advised. Kingsford, Michigan is not a place we often hear about. Most of its residents would presumably prefer it that way. In the neighboring town of Iron Mountain, skiers and snowboarders come together every year at the Pine Mountain Resort to attend the FIS Ski Jumping Continental Cup, where athletes hurl off one of the largest ski jumps in the entire world. Aside from that, back in Kingsford, the town made a name for itself when the Ford Motor Company factory built the first wooden station wagon back in 1931, affectionately known to most as the Woody Wagon. Apart from the history of big snow jumps and having been the literal birthplace of the original soccer mom vehicle, not too much else goes on here. The quiet landscape of northern Michigan is a great place to get away, to enjoy some outdoor activities like hiking and camping. It's a place you'll find teenagers doggy paddling after rope swinging into the icy river waters on any given scorching summer day. Most that have had the opportunity to grow up in a region such as the Dickinson County area can appreciate what a great childhood its town can provide, where the trees and mountains are your playground, and children laugh outside with their friends until the streetlights come on, rushing home on their BMX bikes just as day breaks to dusk. If you haven't grown up in a place like this, Perhaps you've had the privilege of vacationing somewhere similar as a child. A lot of us have created the best memories of our lives in these types of environments. So had some teenagers who frequented the popular swimming hole spot along the Menominee River, just to hop, skip, and breaststroke away from the Wisconsin border. What these teens could have never known, however, is that July 31st, 2008 would be their very last day alive on this earth, as we can never anticipate when real danger lurking around the corner, especially when we're young, because nothing can hurt us, or so we think. Yet the type of indiscriminate violence toward innocent youth that took place just after 3 o'clock in the afternoon that day would garner the type of national news coverage that is every parent's worst nightmare. Wednesday, July 30th, 2008. It was a warm and sunny summer day, and Scott Johnson, like he often would, decided to go for a bike ride. Scott was pretty down on his luck at this point in life. He was divorced, unemployed, and living back home in his mother's house in East Kingsford, Michigan. Scott's only solace seemed to come from exercising and riding his bicycle. He had a spot that he often rode his bike to, a place through the woods behind his mother's house, that led to an abandoned train bridge overlooking the Menominee River. He knew this spot well, but unlike every other bike ride, this time Scott would invite someone along. A 24-year-old woman, someone whose name we will not mention during this episode, as you'll understand why in a moment. By midsummer of that year, the two had known each other for a few months, as Scott had bumped into her that past December while the two had been shopping at a local family dollar store. Scott became attracted to the young woman instantly. She, on the other hand, saw the man she only knew as Scott to be nothing more than a friendly acquaintance. You see, Scott would ride his bike everywhere, all around town. It became a relatively common occurrence for him to ride past the young woman's house, 
where he would stop and say hello when she was tending to her parents' garden out in the front yard. Nothing seemed off to the woman after their conversation had led to Scott extending an invite for the woman to come along on his bike ride. The two were friendly enough to one another and they were neighbors after all. They'd even rode together once before down the same path by the river that Scott was suggesting. Not thinking much of the invitation, she agreed and the two ventured off together on their bicycles. But what this young woman didn't know is that this bike ride would not be like the last time and the man she was about to travel down a remote wooded path with was more dangerous than she could ever have imagined. Johnson knew this particular path like the back of his hand, as it was less than a mile from his mother's house. Once off Skidmore Drive, the pavement eventually ends and a gravel road picks up where it left off. When that road, made up of rocks, tapers off about a quarter mile down the road, it then narrows into a dirt path and continues on through the woods. After a few sharp turns as the two came upon the train tracks, they soon reached the old bridge. The friendly pair then walked over the abandoned bridge together. It's at this point that Johnson decides it's time, as he's had a plan all along. Out of nowhere, and unsuspectedly to the young woman, he assaults her. Once he knew they were well out of sight from any potential onlookers, Scott aggressively came up from behind the woman, placing his hands under her shirt and onto her breasts. Completely taken off guard, she responded by saying no, as he then shoved her to the ground off the path and into the woods. As her body slammed to the dirt, bowled over in complete shock, 38-year-old Scott Johnson forced himself on top of the woman, overpowering her. He then proceeded to rape her. She continually pleaded with the man, repeating the word no several times over, but she quickly realized her attempts to stop him were useless. She was terrified as he ripped off her clothing and subsequently forced himself upon her. She tried desperately to hold back from screaming with every instinct she possessed, believing that if she screamed, he would kill her. When Scott Johnson finally decides he's finished with his deplorable deed, he finally lets his helpless victim up. After cleaning himself off and seemingly coming to his senses, he realized that he could be in serious trouble if the woman decided to notify the police. Johnson had existing warrants out for his arrest, and he was certain he'd be facing prison time if the authorities found out what he had just done. He begged the woman not to say anything, and even went to the extreme of saying something to the effect of, You can punish me any other way, please. You can even beat me with a baseball bat. Just please don't tell the police. Scared for her life, the young woman agrees. Sadly, not to the tempting proposition of beating the man's face in with a Louisville slugger, but rather to his request of not involving the authorities. Going along with anything Johnson wants to hear at this point, she nods her head yes to everything that he's saying. She just had to get out of the woods, alive, and would say anything if it meant Scott Johnson would let her go free. After reassuring him that she wouldn't report the rape to local law enforcement, the two awkwardly and quietly walked out of the woods together. When it was time for the two to eventually part ways, where the road split back onto the pavement. The woman, having just been raped, headed home towards her mother's house. While Johnson pretended to go back to his mother's home, he instead turned back towards the woods. He was sure that the woman would be calling the cops, and he was right. So instead of heading home waiting for the police to arrive, he decided instead to hide out overnight in the great outdoors. Remember, this wasn't a random section of tall trees that Johnson was unfamiliar with. 
Very much the opposite, in fact. He had been coming to this little pocket of the forest for many years and had even set up a secret campsite, his safe place, as he called it. About midday the following afternoon, Scott Johnson decided that the coast was clear, or at least clear enough to make a break back to his mother's house to learn if police had been by or not. Upon arriving at the home, his mother informed the jobless 38-year-old man that the authorities had in fact been to their house looking for him in regards to an alleged sexual assault. With no money, Johnson asked his mother Judy for $10 so he could buy a sandwich from the local subway nearby. After receiving the bill from his mother, Scott Johnson headed to the subway to plot his next move over some lunch. After about an hour of thinking, he finally seemed to have a rational thought enter his mind when he decided that he was going to turn himself in. Johnson then gets up from his table, throws the subway wrapper in the trash, steps out of the sandwich shop, and begins walking on foot towards the police station. He soon approaches a nearby gas station and figures he'll call 911 from a payphone. Yet, just before picking up the phone, and while standing less than 400 yards from the police barracks, Scott Johnson has a change of heart. He abandons his plan and resorts instead to a new one, one far more drastic and violent. Scott returns to the woods, where he had planned to sleep in hiding for another night. Once back at his makeshift camp, he reached down in between two rocks where he had hidden and disassembled a 308 caliber semi-automatic rifle, protected by several layers of plastic saran wrap. It was just as he had left it from several years before. As night fell, Scott Johnson began to reassemble the weapon. Not yet sure who or how many, just that his mind is made up and that the very next day he would intentionally kill several innocent people, taking his many failures and frustrations out on anyone that circumstantially entered the crosshairs of his shooting field as he sat atop a cliffed perch with his long-barreled rifle. Before dissecting the decision and predicament that Scott Johnson has now found himself in, we need to delve into what drove him there. How could one man arrive at this place, 38 years old, unemployed, living with his aging mother, and committing an atrocious act of rape against a woman who was 14 years younger than him, and now planning to murder random innocent people? Well, the answer is a lot, actually. Although none of these reasons are justifiable whatsoever, to Johnson, it was the right move. You see, there isn't one sole factor that brought him into the woods that night, yet there were many components that led him to his skewed line of thinking. If we're even going to try to attempt to understand a person like Scott Johnson, we have to start back at the beginning, when everything in his life seemingly went wrong. Scott Johnson grew up without a father. His stepdad was a drunk and yet he was lucky enough to have his mother, Judy, who raised Johnson and doted on him from the day he was born. By his mother's account, Scott was like any other normal kid growing up in northern Michigan. She did purchase Scott his first firearm at the tender age of nine years old, a 20-gauge shotgun. However, this was not out of the norm for the rural environment where the family resided. It was quite common among the boys in Scott's neighborhood to play in the woods and shoot guns at targets. As he grew into a young man, he would graduate from Kingsford High School at the top of his class. Only 10 days later, Scott was on the next flight out to Louisiana, where he'd complete basic training after enlisting in the U.S. Army. In 1991, while stationed at Fort Polk, he met a woman by the name of Teresa while attending a Baptist church service. The two seemingly hit it off, quickly began dating, and were married soon after. 
Scott would spend a total of five years in the Army before being discharged in 1994. He would leave the service without ever having been deployed or having seen combat. This is about the time when things notably began to change for Scott Johnson, or in him, rather. When the couple moved to Shreveport, Louisiana in 1994, after Johnson's term in the Army came to a close, the two's marital problems soon began to surface. Arguments became increasingly volatile, and Scott Johnson's behavior became more erratic as time went on. The couple fought frequently, with Scott provoking his wife more often than not, regularly degrading and talking down to Teresa. He was verbally abusive, but that would be an understatement at best. He made sure to express to Teresa, quote, how stupid and worthless she was, a sentiment he wasn't interested in allowing his wife to forget. Just after moving in together, the first threat against Teresa's life would occur. Johnson threatened to kill his wife on multiple occasions, and the verbal abuse soon turned physical when he violently pushed Teresa while she was five months pregnant with their second child. Scott's reasoning, because she hadn't mailed out some Christmas cards on time, like she had been told. Yet, that wasn't the worst of it for Teresa. In 1999, a heated argument ensued after Scott had reportedly left their toddler in the backyard alone. When she confronted him about his negligence, Johnson became so enraged that he picked up the family cat by the tail, whipped it across the room against the wall, rendering the helpless animal unconscious. Teresa then stormed into the backyard to gather the wandering child in her arms, outraged and prepared to leave the home. But when Teresa walked back inside, she was immediately met with a long barrel end of a shotgun, pointed directly at her stomach. Look what you made me do, said Johnson as he held the weapon pointed towards his wife while holding their small daughter. The next day, Teresa took the kids and left for Ohio, where her immediate family resided, and never looked back. She'd soon file for divorce, and luckily escaped her crazed, soon-to-be ex-husband. It wouldn't be until years after their tumultuous and excruciatingly painful divorce that Teresa would realize just how lucky she truly was to have walked out of their family home in Louisiana that day alive. It was clear that Johnson's marriage was through. For years following the divorce, Scott wasn't able to maintain new meaningful relationships with women. He began a trend of holding menial jobs, each for only a very brief period of time. Excuses of why one ended was always tied to the next. He bounced around several jobs, from working at a VA hospital to a convenience store, to once even driving a shuttle bus for a Ramada Inn. You name it, Johnson probably did it, but only for a few weeks each at best. The closest he ever came to making a decent career for himself was when he went back to school to become a licensed plumber. Yet as he neared the end of the five-year program, with only one year left to go before earning his licensure, Johnson suddenly dropped out. This, of course, occurred in the midst of his separation with Teresa. Scott Johnson had issues committing to anything, whether it be a love interest or his occupational field. The reason for the departure from these jobs always seemed to have been someone else's fault, never Scott Johnson's. See, Scott had a very unique perspective on life. He was convinced that the universe and everyone that existed within his world was in some way out to get him. He repeatedly felt like he was, quote, getting short-changed, or that he couldn't catch a break, as he'd so eloquently put it years later. This sort of projective mindset and attitude explains Johnson's failures in regards to romantic partners to a T, 
and also lends to the possible rationale behind his eventual disconnect, self-reclusion, and lack of friendships altogether. Scott Johnson's self-destructive attitude would eventually reach an astounding low. He began abusing alcohol and smoking weed quite heavily, coasting through life for years around Louisiana. It's around this time that he also started writing bad checks almost everywhere he went, including at a gun show where he picked up a 308 semi-automatic rifle that caught his eye. He was now an alcoholic with no money. However, he apparently had no income by choice. After quitting all the small paying jobs that he did have, Scott Johnson eventually made the conscious decision to give up working altogether. Once Teresa filed requests through the courts in an attempt to collect child support payments from him, he figured that it would be an excellent opportunity to get back at his ex-wife. No job means no child support. How can she take money from me if I don't make any? He thought. Johnson made the choice to intentionally go broke just to spite Teresa. If only he had applied that same level of commitment to the other facets of his life, this story would certainly have a much more positive ending. Be that as it may, Scott was hell-bent on making sure Teresa didn't get a dime of his money, even if it meant committing to digging an even deeper financial hole than the one he had already dug for himself. It's also at this approximate time when those previously mentioned warrants would come into play. Johnson had written so many bad checks throughout the Shreveport, Louisiana area that he couldn't outrun them any longer. He soon became known as a thief in the community and was eventually forced to skip town. His original plan was to leave the country. He had used some of his last remaining funds to purchase a passport and was even browsing the internet for international flights. He wanted to go totally off the grid, but before he could do that, he felt that he needed to say goodbye to the one person in his life that had never wronged him. The one person that loved him unconditionally and never betrayed him, his mother. In 2001, Scott left Louisiana for his hometown of Kingsford, Michigan, planning a brief visit with his mother, Judy. It was supposed to last just a few days, but those few days would eventually turn to months and soon into several years. Scott Johnson stayed with his mother and older brother, who also lived at the home for seven long years. With his ex-wife still living in Ohio, Scott Johnson hadn't seen his children since 2001, and never was a single child support payment made. He continued his trend of not looking for work, and in his own words, would rather leech off his mother and older brother. This seemed to make more sense to Johnson rather than getting a job and to make the legally required payments to his ex-wife. The one and only thing Scott seemed to be doing while staying with his mother Judy in Kingsford, Michigan, was exercising. He was in phenomenal physical shape because he worked out in an obsessive and questionably unhealthy fashion, running anywhere from 8 to 10 miles a day, on top of riding his bike another mind-boggling 30 miles per day, every single day. Clearly this was how Scott Johnson was spending all of his time. He grew up in the area, but running and cycling the roads and walking trails including the off-beaten remote paths for such long periods of time, gave him the opportunity to learn the terrain of his hometown much better. He would often swim the Menominee River, discovering new nooks and crannies along the steep cliff sides. He knew the swimming hole spot by the train bridge better than any. By this time, Johnson barely had any human interaction throughout his day-to-day. -day. He stuck to cooking his microwave meals and then heading to his bedroom to eat, without uttering a single word to either his mother or brother. 
By 2008, Scott Johnson hadn't had any romantic relationships of any kind for nearly six years. He was a complete loner. His only friends became his mountain bike, training shoes, and the cliffs by the Menominee River. He would often visit his secret camp in the woods, where he had stashed several canned goods, a sleeping bag, and various other survival items, all in a bid to get away, left with nothing but his thoughts. The kids who often hung out by the abandoned train bridge and swam the river during the summer months were familiar with Scott Johnson. They'd see him walking the trails or lighting bonfires by himself frequently, but up until this point, he hadn't caused anyone any trouble. He always kept to himself, so the teenagers never paid any mind to him. Until, that is, they were forced to, that hot summer afternoon, when innocent, playful fun turned to savage and senseless rage in the blink of an eye. July 31st, 2008. The day Scott Johnson's self-imposed anger and failures ferociously came to a head. If you recall, this man had just raped a woman 24 hours before in the very same woods where he was now changing out of his civilian clothes and into army fatigues while gathering up handfuls of ammunition for his high-powered semi-automatic rifle. Just as this was happening, Anthony Spigarelli, age 18, Tiffany Polson, age 17, Derek Barnes, age 18, and Katrina Coates, age 17, were swimming across the river from the opposite side. They then walked up the hillside in order to jump off a neighboring cliff that dropped off into a deeper part of the water below. What they could have never known was that Scott Johnson was waiting for them. Before he was set to take aim, originally focused on the children already swimming in the water at the time, Johnson became startled by the group of teens as they were fast approaching his camp. They unknowingly walked closer and closer towards him. Feeling as though his cover was already blown, he decided to take action and jumped from the woods out onto the walking trail where he began shooting at the teenagers from under 15 feet away. I got a problem. Um, I've got somebody firing, firing shots, gunshots from the East Kingsford train bridge. The group panicked in sheer terror and surprise, stutter stepping while breaking off from one another, all running in different directions. Attempting to flee, Anthony Spigarelli was struck by a bullet in the back of the head. He tumbled down the same hill he and his friends had just scaled, sending his body plummeting back toward the water eventually coming to a halt as a small tree branch stopped him from reaching the river. They're firing okay. from the Wisconsin side of the border. I've got somebody that's been shot. They don't know where the shots are coming from. Holy crap. While holding Katrina Coates' hand, unwilling to leave her friend behind, Tiffany Polson was hit next in the same manner as Anthony and was killed instantly by a high-caliber bullet to the back of her skull at extremely close range. Johnson continued shooting, but soon began firing more indirectly after feeling accomplished with what he had just done to the group of teenagers standing in front of him. Multiple rounds whistled through the woods, clipping leaves and chipping large chunks of tree bark as the teens scattered. Johnson was now shooting at anyone he could get his eyes on. As bullets hit the river water in rapid bursts of succession below, Brian Mort was struck by the crossfire. The 19-year-old had been swimming on the opposite side of the bridge when he was hit. Brian was critically injured, barely clinging to life by the riverbank. As teenagers ran, others swam desperately, attempting to find cover anywhere they could, while others lay completely motionless. After one of the boys had gotten away, he made this second 911 call. We were walking through the woods and this guy jumped up with, you know, a camouflage and he had 
a gun and you started shooting at us. What kind of gun? Like a vomit gun. A vomit gun? Yeah, like... Okay. Um, and where are your friends right now that were shot? I don't know. We just ran. Johnson's gun then inexplicably jams. He wants to keep shooting and tries to, but when he realizes the rifle he bought at a gun show years before, by writing a bad check, has just malfunctioned, he backpedals into the woods. As he slipped into the heavy brush, his green and ground garments began to blend more and more into his surroundings, the further he walked into the heavily wooded area. He was soon completely out of sight, while the scattering teenagers still had no idea where the shooter had been the entire time. A full-on manhunt would soon begin, but no one could locate the shooter, as he had disappeared into a landscape he knew all too well. As authorities rushed and blocked off the perimeter, surrounding both sides of the waterway, they began taking witness accounts from anyone that may have seen the horrors that just unfolded. No one could seem to pinpoint where the shooter had retreated to, as he was dressed in full camouflage attire and seemingly had just vanished. Nearby homes were evacuated overnight to ensure the local community's safety. As darkness eventually fell over Kingsford, Michigan, more than 100 officers scoured the area overnight in search of the killer. But when the teens who were known to have been swimming at the bridge that day never came home, their parents naturally began to fear the worst. August 1st, 2008. The morning after his third consecutive evening in the woods, Scott Johnson finally emerged. The manhunt for a camouflaged gunman is over. Police arrested Scott Johnson Friday as he walked out of the woods near a lake where four young swimmers were shot. Three teenagers were killed in the shootings near the Wisconsin-Michigan border. Before surrendering to police, Scott Johnson broke down his weapon and tucked it back between the rocks where it had been hidden for several years before walking out of the woods like the countless times he had before. Only this time, Scott Johnson was walking out of his secret camp, a murderer. With his hands high in the air, he surrendered and was taken into police custody. The suspect was dressed in camo clothes, armed with a rifle. The rifle is described to me as a military-type assault rifle. Police still had so many questions. Who was this man? And what would compel him to commit such an atrocity against these innocent teenagers in broad daylight? While police attempted to provide the media with answers, they had yet to publicly identify the victims. They weren't yet sure how many casualties there were, as Brian Mort was still fighting for his life in the hospital, and the dreadful task of notifying loved ones and families of those affected still lay ahead. It is unclear if there is any motive or connection to the victims by the suspect. I can tell you that it's just heart-wrenching to look at their families at this point, though. Uh, I don't know the victims or anything about them. I know they're young people, and uh, our hearts go out to their families. It wouldn't be long before the victims were identified as 18-year-old Anthony Spigarelli, 17-year-old Tiffany Polson, and 19-year-old Brian Mort, who would succumb to his injuries soon after in the hospital. Three teenagers who hadn't even fully entered adulthood yet, plucked from the earth before their lives had even begun. Anthony, or Tony as his friends knew him, was a resident of Iron Mountain, Michigan. He was outgoing, loved soccer, and had big dreams of working for NASA one day. He was enjoying the summer, swimming when he was gunned down at random, just three weeks before the start of his freshman year of college. Brian Mort had aspirations of opening up an auto body shop with his brothers one day. His friends would soon mourn his loss in great numbers, 
expressing how much they valued his companionship and how deeply he would be missed. He's a good friend. He was always there for us. I mean, he's helped me through some of the rough times of my life and girl problems, that kind of thing. He was always around. He was 19 years old. I mean, he did nothing to nobody. All he did was try to make his life better and do it. I come along and end it. Brian had struggled a bit in high school, having dropped out when he was just 17. But his friends and family noted that he was recently back on the right track and had just gone back to graduate, earning his high school degree. His father, David Mort, shared with the media just how proud he was of the changes his son made just prior to his death. He did finally come around and he got his head on his shoulders and, and he got it together. That's what I can say. I'm so proud of what he did in the community, what, what, what he stood for. One example of Brian's commitment toward change and his efforts to make his life better was his recent acceptance to a local university. At the time of his death, Brian was just two weeks away from being the first member of his immediate family to ever attend college. Tragically, his life was unexpectedly taken away before his goals could ever be set into motion. The youngest of the three killed that day was 17-year-old Tiffany Polson of Vulcan, Michigan. She hadn't even graduated high school yet and was set to begin her senior year that following September. She was described as a kind-hearted soul who enjoyed cheerleading for her high school football team. Tiffany had hopes to become a surgical technician after earning her diploma. Randy Van Gass, Tiffany's high school superintendent, remembers the young student's presence in the hallways, expressing how terribly missed she will be both by students and faculty alike. Tiffany uh, was one of those kids, uh, when you'd meet her in the hallway, she always had a smile. Uh, very upbeat kid. He would go on to express his grief and concern in regards to how events such as these could have possibly happened in their small town. It's a community where kids walk, ride bikes, and they don't fear for their safety. Uh, it's that type of community, and, and that's been shattered. I think right now the big question is why. And why remained the most repetitive question echoing throughout the small northern Michigan community. Yet the answers to those questions are sometimes ones we may regret asking as the truth can not only hurt, but can also be utterly despicable and too much to stomach altogether. According to Scott Johnson, he sought retribution on a world and society that he felt had rejected him. That day at the local Subway sandwich shop, he decided that the world had to pay. He would later explain to police that the acts of violence were, quote, a balancing of the scales, or a way to get even. His original plan was to use the children swimming as what he called bait. He intended on luring police to his camp after 911 calls would surely go out after having just murdered several innocent teenagers. Once the authorities showed up, he'd be ready and waiting as he'd calculatedly positioned himself on the side of the river where they'd be arriving from. He planned to kill as many police officers as possible. His plans drastically changed, however, when the group of teens came walking by the path directly adjacent to his camp. Brian Mort's body was quickly moved by boat into an ambulance once emergency personnel arrived, but sadly, he wouldn't make it. Officers wouldn't discover the lifeless bodies of Tiffany Polson and Anthony Spigarelli until roughly 8 p.m. the night of the shooting. When asked about the events of that day, Having been holding on to the hand of her best friend as she was gunned down by a loaned coward with a rifle, survivor Katrina Coates had this to say 
about the horrors she had just witnessed after coming so close to reaching the same fate as her friend. We had run about 15 feet and suddenly she lost grasp of my hand. I thought she had tripped, but then I saw blood in her hair and her face had been shot off, mutilated. At that point, I assumed she was dead and I had to keep running. Later, it was confirmed that she had died instantly, but if she hadn't, I wouldn't have ever been able to live with myself having left her there. If there had been any sign that she was still alive, I absolutely wouldn't have left without her. With Scott Johnson in custody and with the homicide investigation in full swing, District Attorney Brent DeBoard would address the media and announce the charges that were being brought against Scott J. Johnson of East Kingford, Michigan. My office filed three counts of first-degree intentional homicide against Scott John Johnson of Kingsford, Michigan, regarding the deaths of Tiffany Polson, Anthony Spigarelli, and Brian Mort. I anticipate that once the investigation is more complete, there may be more charges arising from the events of July 30th and July 31st. Johnson stated that he had been having thoughts about doing something like this for four or five years. He reports that things were set in motion on July 30, 2008, around 3 p.m. Johnson stated that he had kept bags with different gear, including weapons and ammo, hidden in various locations for four years. He stated that the sole purpose of hiding this equipment was for when a day like this came. I anticipate that once the investigation is more complete, there may be more charges arising from the events of July 30th and July 31st. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that Scott Johnson was guilty of the attacks. What police were unaware of at the time of his arrest, however, was just how cold, heartless, and unremorseful Scott Johnson actually was. They would soon learn these facts when they sat down to interview him, as heard in this audio excerpt from his initial interrogation. The reason I think, you know, why it happens is the hate, you know, the, the power, like I said earlier, the power to, 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 my only power to have in this world is to take away, to take you know, as sick as that might sound, just, I feel like I can't do nothing. It just, it didn't matter who was down there. I was, it didn't, I wasn't being selective that way. I didn't. You were just in that mode that you were well, going to take people out. Yeah, at that time. During this interview, Johnson goes on to explain that the rape the night before and his pending arrest for the sexual assault was the last straw. He continues by telling police that he has no remorse for the killings whatsoever. When asked if he felt any guilt for what he had done, Johnson says he only feels remorse in regards to the assault, stating, quote, I think what it is, I betrayed her trust. I've been betrayed in the past, and that hurts a lot. He continues by speaking on past relationships and how he had cheated on a high school sweetheart in 1989 during a senior year. He told police how he never forgave himself for it. He amazingly attributed this to being a catalyst as to why things began to spiral out of control, as if this could ever constitute even a remotely reasonable excuse for the actions he'd take almost 20 full years later. Police were baffled by Johnson's apathy. One thing that was clear, however, was that he did feel slighted throughout his entire life. In his mind, he was owed something. He spoke in long-form self-pity tangents, later transitioning to poor me haikus none of which ever contained a sense of responsibility for why his life had compounded into one giant failure. 
When expressing his past plight to police, the murders seemed almost secondary to Johnson discussing how badly he felt for himself. In utter contrast, he expressed no sympathy towards the victims or their families, telling police, quote, It was very easy to kill. Very easy. Scott Johnson then goes on to show a clear interest in the death penalty, which is not actually legal in the state of Wisconsin where he had been arrested at the time of the murders. He tells authorities candidly that he believes he should have the same thing happen to him that he did to his victims. That's, that's another thing about laws. I mean, something that I've done, I, mean, I, I should have the same thing done to me. Isn't, you know, I, I kind of believe in eye for eye. I mean, I should be lined up and shot. I mean, that's how I should be punished. But people don't see it that way. I don't understand that. People want answers. People want to hear this and that. I, I don't know what, what to tell you. Perhaps Scott Johnson did believe he should be legally executed. Or perhaps he was simply looking for an easy way out. From what we've gathered of Johnson's personality and morals thus far, all signs point to the latter. Not only did he not care about his own life, more importantly and more terrifying to the society in which he lived was that he had no regard for any human life whatsoever. After veering the conversation off to his own selfish commiserations, opting to speak of his divorce rather than the children he had just murdered, police quickly brought Johnson back to the topic at hand. They reminded him that plenty of men lose custody of their own children and don't go on mass shooting sprees as a result. Scott Johnson calmly replied by stating, quote, That's true, but that's their choice. I guess I'm lashing back at the system. In a later interview with the Associated Press, Johnson would compare murdering the three innocent teenagers to, quote, spilling a glass of milk. You get all upset about it? No, you just clean it up and get another glass of milk. Scott Johnson initially entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, as advised by his legal counsel. This would soon be changed, however, in March of 2009, when Johnson pled no contest to three counts of intentional homicide for taking the lives of Tiffany Polson, Anthony Spigarelli, and Brian Mort. Johnson wrote a letter to his mother while being held before his hearing. He expressed to her that he had no interest in, quote, playing the cuckoo card. Johnson was interviewed by several forensic psychiatrists. When speaking with one specialist, he said, You don't have to be crazy to do what I did. Just angry. The wide cast of mental health professionals Johnson would eventually meet with all agreed. He wasn't insane and was clearly able to differentiate between right and wrong, both at the time of the shootings and immediately following. Upon the completion of each professional evaluation and after studying Johnson intently, presuming there had to be more than meets the eye in his case. They all came back with the same conclusion, that he was nothing more than a cold-blooded narcissist. He was simply a man seeking revenge for his own shortcomings, convinced that these follies were brought upon by any and everyone but himself. Regardless, having entered the no-contest plea, he would be expected to serve life without the possibility of parole. Circuit Court Judge Tim Duquette scheduled a hearing where both the victim's families, as well as Johnson, would have the chance to speak before the final sentence was handed down. Here is Tony Spigarelli's father, when it was his turn to finally address the man in the courtroom who murdered his 18-year-old son. He's the guy that shot my son last July. He's the guy that thinks he took Tony away from me, but he's wrong. I still have, and always will have, beautiful memories of my great son. So in essence, Scott Johnson, has failed. Is that surprising that he failed? Not to any of us. For over the last 
10 months, we've learned that he failed as a child, failed as a student, failed at Officer Canada School, failed as a plumber, failed at his marriage, failed as a dad, failed as a brother, and as a son. Congratulations to you. His big plan to kill a bunch of kids and use them as bait to kill officers and emergency personnel. Surprise, surprise, failed. 20-some shots fired, three dead. I guess he failed in the military too. The government will go broke just trying to supply him with shells. Tony's father, David, made sure to remind Scott Johnson of what a putrid human being he truly was, mocking his entire existence at length throughout his victim impact statement. Scott Johnson, clearly disinterested, wandered his eyes past the victim's father but never engaged with him, sporting the same smug look on his face shown in his mugshot the day he was arrested. But David Spigarelli wasn't finished there. Omitted from the available court audio, yet taken directly from the court's transcript, Here's the last thing he would ever say to his son's killer before Scott Johnson was hauled off to prison. A chance to finally achieve something for the first time in his life. When his cellmate Bubba says, bend over, I'm ready to lay this pipe. He will finally have achieved his master plumber status. And me and Tony will be laughing our asses off. Tony's mother would soon join her husband at the podium to give her two cents to Mr. Johnson with these parting words. Never in a million years. utterly heartbreaking to hear the pain in Anthony Spigarelli's mother's voice as she addresses her son's killer. Something about mentioning that Anthony was just going swimming that day is particularly difficult to understand, perhaps because the act itself is simply one of the most innocent forms of fun that so many of us have partaken in as teenagers. This sunny swimming hole in northern Wisconsin was the last place on earth that anyone would expect this complete contrast of dark violence to occur. There simply is no nightmare worse. And Brian Mort's mother, Sylvia, would agree. She would not shy away from letting Scott Johnson know that she indeed wishes the same pain upon him that he inflicted upon her son. I can tell you how you have destroyed so many people that love Brian. But I will tell you that on your judgment day, at that time, honestly, I pray that God shows no mercy to you at all. May you find the rest of your life more miserable than the first years of your life. May you never find peace for what you have done. And actually, may you drive yourself crazy with all the years you have nothing but time to think about what you did. May you always see Brian, Tiffany, and Tony when you fall asleep. May you always have nightmares about what you have done. My name is Sylvia, Brian Mark's mother. You destroyed a beautiful person, and I hope that haunts you forever. Tiffany Polson's uncle then had this to say while staring directly at Scott Johnson. Your mother will always have to live in hell because you're a useless piece of garbage, son. After the victim's family members and friends spoke, Johnson exercised his legal right to address the court himself. Even with the little amount of audio that is publicly available, 
Scott Johnson's few words spoke volumes to the true sociopath that he is. What I did was no accident. However, I did not plan this four years ago. I started kicking ideas around in my head a few hours before the shootings. Scott Johnson would ultimately be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, serving three consecutive life terms for the murders of Tiffany, Anthony, and Brian. He was also given an additional 295 years for six counts of attempted first-degree intentional homicide, along with one count of sexual assault. Yet for some, this sentence was not enough. Brian Mort's father had started a petition in his community seeking the death penalty for Scott Johnson. After 9-11, federal protections were put in place by the FRA, or the Federal Railroad Administration, stating that any act of violence on U.S. railroad property may constitute an act of domestic terrorism. With this fact, along with the crime having taken place between the state lines of Michigan and Wisconsin, the Mort family was hoping to take this matter to the federal courts, thus making the case eligible for the death penalty. When asked about how he felt about Johnson's final verdict and sentencing, Brian Mort's father would speak his mind to the local media. What he did to them, he deserves death penalty. He does not need to get up every morning, get meals or shower, or even sleeping in a bunk. I don't, I don't care if it's a rat's nest. He doesn't deserve that. It's too good for him. Friends and family of Brian Mort gathered at his gravesite in Iron Mountain, Michigan, on what would have been his 20th birthday, just a year after the shootings. They came together and sang happy birthday in unison, and then set balloons free into the northern Michigan sky as a heartwarming tribute to Brian. Happy birthday, dear Brian. Happy birthday to you. We attempted to reach out to several of the survivors of this tragedy to see how they were doing today, almost 13 years later. Understandably, all had either declined to comment, or we as the Invisible Choir podcast team had chosen to cease interview requests out of respect for the victims. Sometimes a tragedy is so horrible that it's best not to contribute toward any further potential trauma. Occasionally, victims find these types of interviews to be cathartic. Others may find them to be triggering. And so it's our job to differentiate and know where to draw the line between investigative reporting and human decency. What we have learned after a brief conversation with Katrina Coates, now Mrs. Whitehouse and her husband Bailey Whitehouse, is that they are living a wonderful and happy life together as newlyweds. They've started a family together and they've endured more than most people ever will before they reach their 30s. Bailey sadly is struggling with kidney failure and is currently undergoing dialysis. He wants people to know that he is staying strong for his wife, Katrina, and their son. We ask our listeners to please keep the White House family in your thoughts and prayers. If there's anything we've learned from Katrina and her strength in this story, it's that it's safe to assume the couple will fight with everything they've got. Bailey says the perseverance his wife has shown and the trauma she's overcome since the events of 2008 inspire him to continually push forward. If you'd like to support the White House family, there is an active GoFundMe campaign to help with Bailey's medical expenses, which is linked in the episode's show notes. As far as Scott Johnson goes, there is no indication that he will ever be executed. More than likely, he will spend the rest of his natural life in prison, and then some. 
He is currently being held at the Wisconsin Secure Program Facility in Boscobel, Wisconsin. In 2016, eight years after the tragedy, Scott Johnson corresponded with the Detroit News via a series of letters in his last known correspondence with the media. When reporters asked Johnson if his outlook had changed in the time that's passed since his arrest and conviction, he wrote, I really don't care. I don't feel a thing. I've yet to feel a glimmer of remorse. I suspect I never will.